Welcome to The X-Files, Stories of Life After God. This special feature of the Life After God podcast explores stories of diverse people who have left the faith and religion they grew up with. In each episode, individuals will share in their own words how and why their worldview changed, the gains and losses associated with their religious and spiritual transition, the lessons they've learned in the process, and what their life is like now. To learn more about The X-Files and the Life After God podcast, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. Special thanks to Ian Gordon for the use of the theme music, The Truth Is Out There. If you would like to consider sharing your story in a future episode of The X-Files, please send a short email to ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Today on The X-Files, I speak with Alexis Record. Alexis is a former Christian raised in a fundamentalist home. In our conversation, she recounts her experience of profound loss, her harrowing encounters with fundamentalism in Christian missions, brushes with death, extreme shaming, and misadventures in Christian education. Today, Alexis is the mother of two remarkable children, a volunteer leader at Sunday Assembly San Diego, and the author of the chapter Women v. Indoctrination in the book Women v. Religion, The Case Against Faith and for Freedom, edited by Karen Garst and published by Pitchstone Publishing. Elements of Alexis's story are being told here for the very first time and may be difficult listening, especially if you have survived abuse of any kind, but especially religious abuse. Hey, Alexis, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. It's, we've been uh, aiming to do this for a little while. I'm, I'm glad we're, we're finally chatting. Oh, yeah, from, from when you came down to San Diego. The first time? Was, oh, gosh, two years ago? Yeah, it has to be at least two years ago for Sunday Assembly. Right, well, you were at conference, too, last May. Right, yeah. So I saw you there, because we both did workshops. Right, and I feel like I'm, uh, you know, I live in Los Angeles, but I feel like I'm a member of the Sunday Assembly in San Diego. Oh, yeah, honorary <laughs> member. That's I right. I think we mentioned you, like, last assembly too like anytime there's a life happens we'll mention it and if you're not there it gets mentioned anyway and you had the cele- uh, the humanist chaplain position so that got announced well this is not about me this is about you so let's uh <laughs> let's talk about you for a minute so um you like so many others grew up in a pretty devout christian family do i have that right Yes, very devout, and I think that's the thing that not a lot of people who know me now, as Alexis Record, know me. Like, back then, I was Alexis Conley, and I loved the Lord. And I don't I don't ever know how to explain that, to because now I hang out with uh, a wide variety of people. Right. And it doesn't matter if they're atheist or Christian. No one really gets how deeply and truly and authentically I loved and worshipped the Lord for 30 years, mm, mm. 29, 30 years. And, um, and, and you explain it to the atheists who've been atheists their whole lives, and they just kind of cock their heads and go, oh, you must have been delusional or, you know. And you say it to the Christians and they go, well, you must not have been authentic. and um, it wasn't actually until I found the clergy project where I found other people like me where I could just relax and like they understood, no, you really, truly, you have to be in this a hundred percent to go into ministry, to, 
um, be a missionary. And I've, I've been on a couple podcasts and written a bunch of blog posts, but I've never talked about the evangelical side of my Christianity or my missionary years ever really publicly before. So that was what I was talking to you about uh, over Facebook was that's uncharted territory and, and makes me a little nervous, but I'm, but I, I think I'm to the point where I want people to know about it. Yeah. And well, I'm excited. (laughs) I'm excited to, to share it. I mean, I know how frightening it can be um, for my own personal experience, but I also, you know, I have interviewed so many people who really do take a risk in, you know, and in their own, it may not be as big of a risk out in the world as it is in their own mind. Um, Mm -hmm. And and then when they get done doing it, they're like, wow, I'm really glad I did that. Or they get people that say, and I'm sure you've had this too, people that say, oh my gosh, thank you so much for sharing. I thought nobody understood me or, you know, I thought I was alone or, you right. know, I never heard yes. anybody tell this. It could have, you could have been telling my story. I, I, get, I get this all the time. <laughs> you know, people like, I thought you were talking about me. <laughs> so, right. so before we get into, and I'm really excited to get into your ministry uh, years and your experience there and what that was like. But before we get into that, I just want to jump back in time a little bit to your growing up experiences uh, and ask you um, what that was like for you, whether it was pretty negative or largely positive or a kind of a mix of both and kind of how you grew up in, in the church. Sure. So, um, church was my life. We went to church eight times a week because that was twice on Sunday and, um, also twice on Wednesday. So it might've been nine times a week. Mm. Uh, <laughs> my school was at the church, so I didn't really ever get away from not only that group of people, but that mindset, that group of doctrines. Um, My mom was my primary caregiver, and she was very loving and amazing. Um, And my grandma, Lucy, um, was very loving and amazing, lived like three minutes down the road and was at my house every day. And if we needed something like you know, clothes or food, um, a baseball glove, she would provide it. (laughs) So, um, and her name was, uh, Lucille record. And so I'm, I'm actually, when she passed away, I am, I took on my, uh, kinship name, (laughs) last name. Oh, that's right. So it's, it's actually a family name. Um, and then my mom passed away when I was 19. And, um, and she died in a car accident, a reckless 16 year old was, I think it was his, he'd had several accidents before that for reckless driving. Oh my. And, and this was the first one that it's not even the first one that injured someone, but, um, he, yeah, he, it messed him up. (laughs) And, uh, I remember holding him after sentencing, he got like house arrest and, you know, he was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm. But I remember holding him like and I was holding all his weight. I'm grieving, but he just was destroyed. Um, and I and suppose he like, didn't have a license or anything at that point either. Right. Because of his prior. I believe 
now this is all now rumor and conjecture, but you know, it's a small town and it was like he had a rich stepfather was the rumor and just kept hiding the evidence or buying him a new car or oh, some, wow. somehow he, he was being facilitated and, and he was like a privileged, you know, all American white kid and just yeah. kept getting away with, you know, be boys will be boys mentality. And until it cost someone her life, um, she was on her way to teach sign language to an elderly couple in our church who had just lost their hearing or the husband had. Oh, wow. And it was like they had no communication in their marriage. And that was really hard. Yeah. Um, and she was going to make a left turn. And uh, so her wheel was cranked to the left, but she had not started the left turn. One of those yep. backcountry roads with two lanes. And so when he hit her from behind, because her wheels were already turned to turn left, mm. it pushed her into the, you know, it didn't push her forward. It pushed her left right. into a big old truck. Oh, no. So, um, so it was pretty instant, although the paramedic, so we're also a very religious town or it just seemed that way to me. So like while I'm holding the guy who killed my mom, I'm sharing the gospel with him. Mm. We gave him a gospel bracelet. The paramedic told me that my mom died with a smile on her face because she knew she was going to heaven. Like wow. it was like these are pivotal moments in my life, life changing things. But I felt this God's presence and um, and it was like. I don't know. Before my mom was killed, I was 19. But you asked about childhood. I grew up. Uh, in my church school, um, if, if you've heard of ACE stands for adverse childhood, uh, effects or <laughs> experiences. Hmm. Well, our ACE stood for accelerated Christian education. And I was in that program almost my whole childhood. I was in public school for kindergarten and first grade, uh, was pulled out because there was a school assignment where we had to adopt a ghost for Halloween and it was like gigapets were the thing. So my, the teacher thought this would be cool. Like you'll adopt a, a ghost and feed it and it's all on paper. It's just a writing exercise. But of course there's no such thing as ghosts unless it's the Holy ghost. So that ghosts are demons. So our school is run by Satan and, uh, and I think this was a, my sister's assignment, but anyway, we got, we both got pulled and put in the preschool program of the accelerated Christian education system that was started at my church that same year. And coincidentally, my pastor convinced my mom, our school was run by Satan. The same time he had this school that needed students and to pay tuition and attend. Right. <laughs> so how convenient. Yes. And, and this is a man who, was my pastor all my childhood until, you know, teen years where we went to a different church. And, and he's still part of my life, although he has um, Parkinson's and a bit of dementia. And so now our relationship consists of him sending me accidental Facebook messages about pictures he's accidentally taken or an accidental video he uh, <laughs> took of him watching the news or, you know, the other day he sent me an invitation to messenger on messenger. So I'm not going to like confront him at this point in my life, <laughs> but <laughs> right. 
but he kind of ran our ACE school. And, uh, and so we were taught from, from, you know, preschool, but really I was in second grade, all the way to graduating high school that evolution was a lie and a conspiracy and that um, God was a Republican. Of course. And, um, and, and then there was like not direct messages. Like we were taught women belonged in the home. That was direct. But we were also taught that they shouldn't, women shouldn't be educated, which was an indirect message that you can compile from a, all the tiny, tiny messages that just added up over time. Like the, yeah. the materials never had a woman in career. And, and there'd be like a whole book on careers you can do. And the only one that would have female pronouns would be the homemaker. And it was very androcentric language throughout. And, and like there'd be lessons on how women should submit to men and ways to do that. Like there'd be examples of a wife wants a pretty dress and the husband says no and she has to submit. And, um, and Esther this is so interesting. It's it's ridiculous. This, Johnny Scaramanga did a whole PhD thesis on experiences of AC students in the UK. And oh, really? Yeah, it just came out last year, and and he also has published papers on how it's racist and how you know. Well, and Betsy DeVos banned. has been a big uh, advocate of this educational system, right? Yeah, Rebecca Klein from HuffPost did a huge, massive piece on yeah. schools getting vouchers, and ACE was mentioned, and I was actually interviewed for that. And Anais Sharshenko was in, in the ACE education system. I, I'm, it's so funny because she also told me about the woman who wants the dress, and the husband says, we can't afford it, and then she says, okay, honey, and he's like, it's so nice when you're so submissive. Thank you. Like. I, yeah. I I literally just heard that story from Anais uh, not two weeks ago. Yeah, uh, yeah. That was, and it was the water we swam in. It was the air we breathed. Like sexism and like it was so normal. It was it was of course normal that there's another one if you're in the kindergarten materials and the it's a teacher training manual that says how to teach these materials and it says get a box full of daddy's things and it will have a screwdriver and it will have a, you know, and then the box of mommy's things and it will be an apron and a, and it was all like gender rules, but then even like the little boys and girls, the boys will want to play games and the girls will want to help mom with dishes. Oh my. And it was, it was very, yeah, there's a whole book where you're, cause we learned like the, in these narratives, like these stories that, you know, the characters in these stories would have these adventures and the, and yeah, they would just naturally sit down and talk about whatever the lesson was. And there's this whole story where we learn all about these lessons and all about science. And the only time a woman appears in all of these is at the very end, when they come home from their lessons, father and son, and she goes, you guys look exhausted from all this learning or working. Why don't I make you a sandwich? That's it. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that is woman, woman, that is your appearance. So... Yeah, yeah, and so it, you basically are, you know, this is this is really abusive. I mean, you're denying children an education which affects the entire rest of their life. I, I mean, I, I don't have to tell you this. How yes, that does. that must be something that you still live with the consequences of that. You probably think of it so often. Is that true? Does it come up for you pretty regularly? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's I 
you, you ever see Bones? Yeah. Where yeah. <laughs> Dr. Bones, I don't get that reference. That was me. <laughs> oh. I don't get that reference. Or I've watched, so actually kind of exciting. I start school tomorrow. I'm going back and I'm taking my first ever chemistry class because to because I was interviewed by Rebecca Klein for this piece on Betty DeVos and, and ACE. And she asked me, you know, what, what are you doing? What, how did you make up for that lack of education? And I just kind of went, um, and, and honestly, I've watched some Khan Academy videos and I've watched stated clearly videos and I've read Arne Ross book on, you know, evolution, but I, I haven't really done anything to fill in the gaps, really just Mm. enough to get by. So starting tomorrow morning at 7.55 a.m., I will be filing into a classroom with a bunch of teenagers. Wow. (laughs) Congratulations. And and learning. Yeah, thank you. I'm terrified and excited. And I've already like reached out to, and I'm taking physics on Tuesday. So it's physics and chemistry, both of which I have zero, because all my science classes in ACE are God did it, right? Right. I, I memorized a chapter of the Bible every month and I memorized a verse for per workbook and but I didn't actually learn real science and you're saying that those memory exercises aren't useful to you now (laughs) (laughs) if only there was a job that would hire an atheist who knows the bible really really well yeah, (laughs) yeah I mean this is like a subject that comes up over and over and over on the clergy project forums like what do we do now um, yeah, cause it was all short term memory also, and we didn't memorize anything else. So I, some of it, like I had a good memory at one point and I could, you like apply that to college classes. Cause I did go to a Christian college after that. Right. And, uh, cause when my mom was killed, she had this one wish that I go to Christian heritage college, which was founded by. Henry Morris and Tim LaHaye, you know, from the Left Behind books and right. the creationism, you know, father of cre- modern creationism. So she, that was her dying wish. And then we had death benefits, you know, you kill someone, you have to like pay money to the family. So that was, we called it, I went to college on blood money and I didn't get to choose my college. I went to the one this money paid for. It would have felt wrong to use it for a different college. Right. Wow. So I found, and it was okay because I had been raised to be a missionary. It was drilled into me in the because I could only be as a woman, a homemaker, a mother, a missionary, or a teacher until I had children, or a teacher of a classroom my children were in, which is what my mom did. She was our, you know, mm. AC doesn't have real teachers, and they discourage credentials or education. So their teachers actually have they can have a if they have a degree it can be Bible. But they don't want, because the educational system, and I use the word educational lightly, has failed every, every academic study ever done for decades. Like, mm. they don't want real teachers actually facilitating this. So they will hire supervisors. In my mom's case, she was married at 16. She didn't have an education. She'd never been to college. Like, she was perfect. So she was the head supervisor. And then, uh, and I had to call her Mrs. Conley. And... <laughs> And so, so like I had no education. And so so I went to this college that gave me classes on women should submit to men 
and creationism. I took a whole college course on creationism. So clearly this type of so-called education is abusive to the children that are receiving it. And But the question I always have, it sounds like your mom did this completely conscientiously, truly believing she was doing the right thing. And then behind, but behind that are obviously men who know that what they're doing is harmful and complete bullshit. I just wonder where the responsibility lies in your mind. Well, I liked, I was maybe more critical of my mom because there's so many. Yeah, and maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe, I mean, tell me what you think. Yeah. Well, no, because I need you to be on my mom's side here because I become her as a little missionary and I kind of need absolved of the things I did as a missionary because Hmm. I did the same things adults in my life did to me growing up. And so here's the kicker. As a missionary, I personally have led over a hundred people to Christ, a conversion experience using the gospel. Hmm. And in the vast, vast majority of cases, I was in a position of power over the person I was converting. They were a child or they were, you know, I was the missionary and they were the, you know, congregant. They were younger. Uh, Rarely were they my age or older. And in those few cases where they were, it was done the right way. I think it was, I was on the evangelism team for a mega church. People would come to the church. You won't force them. They signed up to get more information about converting to Christianity. I went to their home. That's different. That that I'm okay with. For the most part, of course, the things that I said to them that convinced them to be converted were not based in truth or reality because we like to subvert truth, give it a capital T and make it a, based on faith, which, right. you know, faith is not a pathway to truth. Put it we out put of reach of anything. all criticism. Right. You make it unfalsifiable. Mm. So I, I, yeah, so I don't feel good about what I did, but I have to understand, I have to forgive younger me for the, the terror I put in people, fear of hell. And there's a thing called religious trauma syndrome and that's how it's caused. And I was part of a circle, like a complete generational indoctrination system that I perpetuated, I, I swallowed whole. I was not one of those people, like some people that deconverted from a major religion will say, I was always a little free thinker. And I, even back in Sunday school, when I was five, I asked the teacher, no, that wasn't me. I truly, truly believed it. I dealt with the cognitive dissonance by sinking into my faith. I had strong faith. And, and it felt real. And, and I, there's a book, Karen Garst's book coming out this year, mm. Women v. Religion. Um, I'm chapter three on indoctrination. And I really got to research and study the um, effects of indoctrination and what it does to your brain. And it does some really real things. So like you might believe something that's bogus, but your fear of that bogus thing and your belief in that bogus thing will affect you physically in your brain, your brain's pathways and, and the chemicals it releases. And 
And so you're the nuns, um, you know, praying and monks chanting, they have similar brain chemistry. Everyone that feels like their religion is real and true, and they just know they like, you know, like first John chapter five, you know, it's true. Mm. That's that knowledge that like experiential knowledge, you know, um, <laughs> that yeah. we were taught yeah. in Greek class, like, oh, this means to know means to experience you experience God. Um, experiencing God is a book that we had to study when I was missionary. Yeah, I so, know it. Yeah. That is what you cling to, and that actually changes your brain. So those experiences are real in the sense that they are physically happening to your brain, but they're also universal. So that you can ha- be in um, a mutually exclusive doctrine-wise religion. You can be in two opposite religions and have the same human phenomenon of deep belief. And, and it can affect your life. It can inspire you. It's real. So when I say I loved God and I wanted to serve him, it was so authentic at the time. But even if it was not based on anything real. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. In fact, I just had someone on my Facebook page sort of taking me to task that I couldn't criticize the Bible because only people who believe really understand what the Bible says. And so it's, (laughs) you know, it's beyond the reach of people who don't believe and he was trying to right. discredit the fact that I was a believer in the past and that I had not only my own personal, as you, as you so perfectly described, my own very real personal experience. I mean, I, when I, I remember in college, and I've, I've described this on other podcasts for people, you know, going for a walk, um, you know, I read the, you know, the verse and I believe it was in the Gospel of John, uh, where, or maybe it, was, maybe it was Mark, where God, Jesus got up very early before the sun rose and went out and communed with the father. And so I, I would, you know, and then I read, of course, these great saints of old who, um, you know, like moody, who barely slept, you know, like got up at four in the morning to pray for three hours. So I really felt that's what I needed to do. And I would get up before the sun came up and I had a full day of college coursework ahead of me. And I would go walking in the woods that were like adjoining the college and, talk to mm-hmm. talk to Jesus as though he were walking on the path with me and it was so real but this guy on my facebook page is like no uh you know you you um obviously never knew uh the lord you know and and so i i, I totally get like how people just they they don't want to allow for any criticism of what they believe and and you're telling them like no i really really believed it it's it's really an amazing thing that your brain can do. Right. Yeah. No, I if there was a true believer in the world, it was me. And mm. it was real. And I Dan Barker actually has this great quote, but I'm hiding from my children in the bedroom and not by my computer, so I don't <laughs> cuz mm. they're loud. But um it's something like, you know, if you have to believe it in order for it to feel real, it's not real. Right. Yeah. And and that's the Holy Spirit is just the biggest unfalsifiable carrot on a stick. Like you believe it and then you feel the Holy Spirit. That's your proof of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's also the proof of, you know, um, a Muslim believer feeling right. Allah speak to her or a, you know, a Hindu believer feeling. I have actually friends who are Hindu and Muslim. And 
when they ask for prayers or when they talk about their religion, it's the same. It's the same as when I did. And so you and it is universal. You really then, like you said, like became your mom. You replicated what she did because that's what you were taught. And your mom mm-hmm. was as as far as you know, your mom was completely sincere in everything she did, right? Yeah, yeah. And so were you as you were doing what you now find reprehensible. Had you right. and you mentioned a minute ago, like it was <laughs> it's been pretty hard to forgive yourself. What's what what's that been like for you? Well, I think that's why this is the first time I'm really talking about it ever. And I've I've written so much about, you know, my deconversion. I've written about I've been on podcasts and and this is the thing that brings me a little shame. Like I went into other cultures, some that were influenced by the West in an unfair way. Right. And like like Papua New Guinea when I went with new tribes and and we lived in a tribe and we're learning the language and culture in order to twist it into our own. It, yeah, you go into other cultures and, and you have to change them because they're all going to hell. And just the way you view people when you think that they don't believe the magic words so they're not going to be in heaven with you is us versus them thinking, is the roots of prejudice the roots of racism, the the mega the meta analysis of all those studies done by the three researchers, which I mentioned in the in my chapter in um, Karen Gar's Women v Religion book, it, it there is a strong and undeniable link between racism and religion, and right. it was us versus them. It's tribalism. It's your lizard brain going, they are different, and then amplified by. God says they're different and it makes you holy and it makes these prejudicial thoughts holy. And, you know, a lot of people say I became a better person after I deconverted and, and goodness, if I have, I've said that I've heard it. And if that does not get the most pushback from believers, like you're not better than us or, you know, that's not what we're saying. Religion holds you back. There's an undeniable scientifically shown through studies link between religion and uh, sexism. Hmm. Though there's a wage gap percentage tied to it for every, you know, percentage of religion in an area, there will be the wage gap will go down by a measurable amount. There is a, an undeniable link between religion and um, anti intellectualism is one way to say it, but just like, um, and I'm not talking IQ tests, which sure can be iffy, but like, um, there's a part of letting go and letting God that changes your brain chemistry that makes you less stressed, but should it always, <laughs> you know, like yeah. you're in a bad situation and you like, I'm going to pray about it and not do anything anymore. <laughs> well, and the way that Marx, so, you know, the way Marx described that was like being on drugs all the time. Like if you... You know, the opiate of the people was basically this idea that religion kept people passive. It kept them, as you say, low stress, but low stress often correlates then to passive and inactive and um, not in charge of your own destiny, not really seeking your own path, but just, you know, like a sheep, literally, (laughs) you know, following along. And that's where corrupt leadership really wants people to be is just in this follower mode. 
Right. Yeah. And and if you're a woman, that is magnified. Yeah. Oh, if you're yeah. a woman, it is. Um, yeah. If you're any gender that's not like cis white male, right? <laughs> you know, it is. Uh, being passive is like a good believer is passive. A right. good believer trusts the Lord, relies not on their own understanding in all their ways. But a female good believer does the same to the, like those they're subordinate to. So there was a lot of abuse, like in the church, sexual abuse. There was a lot of women not being able to speak or it was, it is just rife. It is just the, maybe it's not set up for predation, but it welcomes it. And it's just the most comfy environment for it. Wow. All the while claiming like this moral superiority. Yeah. And then studies have shown like they're, you're better off without it. You're better off without it. Yeah. <laughs> you are. Like your kids are better off without it. So it does not make point... kids more altruistic. Quite the opposite. So you were in Papua New Guinea and I, I assume other places as well. And then you got Lots out of, of it other somehow. Places. Yeah. yeah. Where, where'd you go? Like where were you around the world? Um, my very, very first trip was through Awana and it was like a missionary training to South Africa and Swaziland. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I remember being gone for like a month and it was the longest I'd ever been away from my mom. And I got home and she had just was crying and like, I missed you. I thought of you every day. And I was like, I thought of you once when I bought you this souvenir. <laughs> like <laughs> I was just, I was on fire for the Lord and just thought of the Lord the whole time. Wow. And, and we did ministry until like we were bone dead tired. So the next year when Iwana was like, oh, you now qualify for the extra special next step people program. I was on board and they sent me to Jordan and Egypt mm. the next summer. Um, and that was less of a magical experience because we were still bone tired at, with an addition of throwing up all the time. Mm. Um, but our leaders were abusive, just like rife for predation. And I've never named them publicly, but Dick and Dana Medcalf were our American leaders. The local missionaries were very nice and sweet people, but the Americans they sent with us were abusive. They kept water from us. They kept food from us. I lost 20 pounds in a month. Oh my. And most of it was water weight. What? Um, in the desert? I, in the yeah, and it's the worst heat I ever experienced, and we had no air conditioning. They did put a fan up while we were there, like it was such a second thought. We weren't allowed water though, so we weren't allowed water. And most of my throwing up was like dehydration. We weren't protected from the elements. There was a risk we had malaria. Um, I was hit by Dana. She was just, I think, stressed and. I had left and she didn't know why it was because my leader, who was my peer, but he was a boy. So he's my leader at the time. Uh. <laughs> he had sent me to make two more gospel bracelets and they, all the materials were upstairs. And I was like, yes, sir. And I was, you know, I wanted to serve. I wanted to please the Lord. I wanted to please the people around me. I wanted to be a good person and a good Christian. And so I ran upstairs. I made the two gospel bracelets as I'm making them. She slapped me so hard. I dropped them all. Like, and this was just, wow. you know, it, and then the only thing she ever said after me was she wrote, as I'm reading my Bible, like one morning in the corner on the floor with the other people around me, 
she walks past me and throws a yellow piece of paper, like ripped off some yellow notebook. And I opened it up and it said, I'm sorry. And that was it. <laughs> like, she couldn't even say it out loud. She couldn't talk to me. Yeah. Um, and every day, and my mother had just been killed the, some months before this. While, you were out of, while you were out of the country? No, she died in May, and then okay. this was that summer. Wow. Gosh, and so, so much is going on for I'm you. I'm grieving. I'm physically dying, I guess. Like, when I got yeah. home, I had my hair covered, too, so I did look a little different. But I walked right past my father, who came to pick me up from the airport, and he did not recognize me. I had, like, it looked like I'd been punched in the face because I had, like, these dark circles while I was there, another missionary, Chris, and I can't remember his last name, Anderson, Chris, somebody, also a, a jerk from the States, not a local Egyptian or Jordanian, um, was super abusive, like verbally abusive, like yelled at us. And we were up all night because we're in charge of these like, you know, kids who are staying there to like listen to the gospel and we're sleeping with them and they don't sleep. <laughs> and like, mm. so we're sleep deprived. Uh, we don't have water. We're not allowed to buy our own bottled water with our own money. What was the rationale between behind not letting you have water? It was control. It was, um, like a reward. If like, you did the right thing, you got a little bit of water. It was like, like they would go around the room at the end of the night and go, what couldn't you give up for the Lord? What couldn't you sacrifice? And I remember my answer. Everyone was like soda or lipstick or, you know, my answer was <laughs> female genital muta mutation, you know, mutilation or something. It was like female circumcision. That was my answer because I had given up everything else. I'd given up chapstick because I didn't know if I had access to it. And I thought using it more than once a day meant I was addicted to it and loved it more than God. So I gave it up. Chapstick. I would sleep on, yeah, I'd sleep on the kitchen floor, which was linoleum, because I thought I was, you know, getting too comfortable with a bed. And what if the Lord called me to live on the jungle floor? Like, and I was so punished for that answer because then he went around taking away all those things. Your lipstick's confiscated, no more soda. Um, and to me, he just gave me the nastiest look. This Dick, his name was Dick, Dick Medcalf. <laughs> Gave me the nastiest look, like, you know, you are horrible. You said the thing that didn't work for my, you know, taking away game, and I hate you now. And then, you know, like, wow. he would he would talk to other, like, we're teenagers. He would talk to other teenagers about other teenagers. He would, it was psychological torture. And the yeah. worst part, the worst part um, was coming home and telling the men in my life, because the women had, you know, had died or were dying. <laughs> like, mm. so I had men in my life at this point that I had been abused and them not believing me because I was a woman. And you don't believe the testimony of women. They wouldn't have said that, obviously. But if my boyfriend had, you know, said he had been abused, they would have believed him. And I came home and said I was abused and they said, you just didn't, you know, you just misinterpreted. You need to submit yourself to authority better. Wow. Um, 
Yeah. So control. And then after that experience, I was done with Awana, obviously. And I didn't report it for like 10 years. And when I reported it, I, I talked to this great person at Awana headquarters. And she was just so used to people like, this is horrible. I called her and I'm not going to say her name. and I'm not going to say what, you know, all happened. Sure. But she was a victim of sexual abuse. One of her kids was in Awana. So that's how she got this position to talk to other victims of abuse. And mostly she was, she was waiting for me to talk about my sexual abuse. And I didn't have sexual abuse in Awana. So she like almost was like, so you weren't touched inappropriately under your clothes. You were, and, I, and she was so used to hearing those stories oh that gosh. got reported. Do those stories get reported to the police? I have no idea. But if she's so used to just talking to sexual abuse victims, and I know she did not report the medcasts, she told me she didn't. She's like, it was too long ago. They're not really active in ministry anymore, so we're not going to do anything. Wow. Well, they, they starved me, beat me, you know, deprived me of water. I went home and, like, went into the hospital. I went to my doctor, and he wanted to do blood tests and stuff, and I was so scared, like, because I was so dehydrated. I couldn't give blood. Like, it was scary bad wow yeah and they were died like if they're not going to report that <laughs> like people broke bones on this trip <laughs> like people had i think i threw up every day i uh, and oh, i was forced man. to like work right. constantly I, I couldn't sleep at one point i threw up stood up and gave a rousing message shared the gospel and as soon as it was done, I went and threw up again. And I credited the Holy Spirit for the strength to just get up and give the message. Not adrenaline, not, you know, right. survival. Just the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and wow. yeah, so, so I was done with Alana. Yeah, I, sh- I, got, I should say. I got my citation award, which is like the top honor you can get. I did my missionary service. And then I like, I was done with them. So I moved. I tried Youth for Christ. So I spent some time in uh, Northern Ireland. And I ended up, um, and I, I love that trip, but it was a little too woo for me being this like fundamentalist. I didn't like the faith healing or the praying or splashing holy water on church doors or, you know, <laughs> um, so that wasn't my scene. And then I eventually went to, into like the interface program through New Tribes Mission, where we went to Papua New Guinea and we spent the summer there and we did a tribal side mission and lived in a tribe out in the middle of nowhere and learned how to learn the local culture so you can subvert it, how to learn the local religion so you can better convert them. Um, and, and I used like, they used the chronological approach to sharing the gospel. I've used that like in the States. Um, so yeah, so Africa, the Middle East, and then I spent a semester of school in Israel um, just learning the Bible better so I could, I went to all the places in Israel mentioned in the Bible, every place so that, except for like the West Bank, you know, area, right. <laughs> and we went everywhere else. Where the bad Palestinians live. Yeah. Yeah. I know. But, um, yeah, so then I, I just studied the Bible and, and then I went, I graduated valedictorian from my Christian college, um, and, I had a professor, Ron Barnes, who encouraged me to pray at least 30 to 45 minutes every day, which at the time just 
changed, like I was all head knowledge and this just made it even more real. Um, so I was like, like the apostle Paul's like, I'm a Jew of the Jews. I'm a Christian of the Christians, right? right? I'm right. the top, the only way I could be better if I was male. And, you know, cause at the time I was like the only girl in my seminary classes, you know, like <laughs> the only woman, the wow. other, there was like one other one and she was married right. to another seminary student. So they were kind of going through it together for joint ministry. And that was like the excuse why she was there. I was like the anomaly. They couldn't make any excuses for you. They're like, what's Alexis doing here? Yeah, I was engaged. Like I was doing it right. Right. You were trying to become as male as you could become. Trying. Um. (laughs) Can a leopard change his spots? I mean, come on. (laughs) See, I knew I like, like even when like in my, my church growing up, I couldn't, when I would speak like about my missionary trip or something, um, well, in the church growing up when I was little, I couldn't be behind the pulpit. So if I did speak, it had to be in a microphone, off to the side, off the stage, you know, stuff like that. Um, so I knew like all this head knowledge I was told over and over will greatly benefit my children. Right. So I got, I got the message, I need to have a million children because they're my mission field now, right? And uh, I started, um, well, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm just keep. I'm trying to go linear. I did a lot more missionary work. Um, yeah, but those were like the pivotal the main one. Yeah. I, I also wanted to just get a bit of context. Is there a denomination that you're a part of it through all of this? Or is it sort of like independent stuff? Because isn't um, Awana yeah. Baptist? Yeah, we were Baptist. Okay. We were, but like, but you could also do EV free or non-denom and it was all kind of the so similar. The thing that I'm, the reason I asked that is, so you, you know, you describe these extreme experiences of male headship, you know, women being totally subordinated and dominated, uh, physical abuse, deprivation, but we're not, we're not talking about some fringe cult here. We're talking about Baptists. Yeah. Baptists, yeah. like Protestants, yeah, they're the biggest group of evangelical Christians in the country. Various right. stripes of Baptists. So, like, I just want to make that point because it's not like you're in some kind of crazy sex cult somewhere where you're. Tra- like, this is normal evangelical Christianity in mid mid America. Where where were you located? Where was the church? California. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> yes, California. Oh. This can happen anywhere. See, I, and this I is so people, important. I tell people I was raised in a cult. I if they do, if I, I don't mean, know you were them. you were right because I was because what's the difference between a major religion like the one I was raised in and a cult size? It's funny to say like I had these life changing not not positive negative life events based on not outside the main doctrines based on the main doctrines of a major religion. Right. And someone will just roll their eyes like, oh, my grandma's that religion. She's fine. Okay. Well, and there are there are a number of Baptists <laughs> that did escape being through the worst of, of, of what you went through. I mean, Anais that I mentioned a minute ago was raised Seventh-day Adventist like I was. You know, her experience, I mean, mine was bad enough, but hers was far worse than mine just because of the context that she found herself in, which was very cultish, extremely cultish. Yeah. Um, very it's fundamentalist. Very, it, yeah. It's like if if you're yeah. fun, like we were doing everything right. We were digging through the Bible, and like if it was hard, if it it seemed evil, like 
slavery or women's subordination or whatever. We would do it because God, those were God's words. And if your fundamentalists <laughs> are wackadoodle, then your fundamentals are wackadoodle. And if you can only do Christianity, you know, on the surface level, far away from your charter document, then there's something wrong with the core. Right. It is, you know, we can judge how different people, because I'm always told it was a human error. It's human error. God's perfect. The Bible was perfect. Human error was all the cause of your, you know, stress. And if it's not human error, it's Satan. And if it's not Satan, it's God testing you. <laughs> I know there's always some workaround, some excuse. But it's never like this is the problem was the doctrines you believed and your life decisions based on those doctrines and your beliefs based on those doctrines uh, made your life worse and made the world around you a less tolerant, less intelligent, less altruistic, less good, less equal place to live. And, and I have like, that's a burden I have now, mm. I think. And it's, it's inspiring to me. Like my life now is all about making the world a better place. It's, I'm the head of outreach for our local Sunday assembly. And we do, we feed homeless people and we do, you know, those things, like we pick, crops for food banks we pack boxes we for food banks we've helped you know the the least of these all the things that I couldn't really do in church without the additional burden of converting people or mm. judging them um like we couldn't ever go to world health day and and help lgbt teenagers learn about stds you know in church um so <laughs> clearly not so do you feel like you're atoning in some way for the years that you spent converting people? Yeah, definitely like the plot of Xena Warrior Princess. Like <laughs> you do all the bad and you carry the bad with you. It never goes away and you can never really make up for it all the way. But you can kind of forgive yourself for like where you were, like forgiving my mom mm. and forgiving my grandma and forgiving like my ancestor, like for what happened to me helped me realize I would have been them. Well, I was them. I had my daughter. Um, I had her converted to Christianity when she was barely three years old. Wow. And, and, it, and I converted her. Like we talked about, we memorized the Bible from that time she was like born practically. Same as me. Like we always say we're Christians from the womb because it felt like we were. I, was, I accepted Christ as my Savior at three years old because I completely knew all the ramifications, justifications, and I'd already compared all the major religions at three. Um, so that's totally reasonable. Right, of course. <laughs> and so did she. And we were, and it happened, we were in the Ronald McDonald house, you know, um, huh. she had like surgery the next day. And, and like, and she was, she couldn't sleep. And so, and I had always like pushed this Jesus like his death on the cross and what that meant. And like, you know, I'm pushing sure. the ideas of heaven and hell and the death of a guy and substitutionary atonement, which is, you know, it is bullshit. Crazy. And it, it's like, and it's like morally reprehensible. It is. Yep. And I'm pushing that on a three-year-old who of course accepts it because mommy said it. And this is the thing. She, it's not her and fault. And she knows how, 
it, she knows how important it is to me. She knows how like my tone changes. She knows like she has to accept it. Right. And that is indoctrination. If we waited till, you know, the human brain is done developing at 25. Can you imagine if people were only shared these, the idea of substitution, you know, the, the biblical idea of, you know, Jesus died for our sins and, and it kind of covered people from before he died and kind of, and all those wackadoodle ideas when they, when their brains were fully developed, when there was not relationships on the line, right. who would be a Christian? No one. Or, or human beings are, are lovely folks. So lots of people would be, but not very many. <laughs> right. Exactly. But it's, it's this, to me, it's back to this question I was getting at earlier, which is where, where does the accountability lie? Because, you know, your daughter was doing what all sons and daughters try to do, which is to please their parents. They, it's, it's like any other animal. You, you do a certain behavior and you get either a positive or negative reaction. And so you want to do the things that get you the positive reaction, whether it's a treat, you know, or like training a dog or, or a smile from your mom, which triggers some chemical release in your brain. Cause Hey, I, I did that thing and my mom smiled. I'm going to, I want to do more of that, you know? And, and, and then you pass it on to your children, just as your mom passed it on to you. And eventually, you know, some adults, you know, wake up and realize this is not okay. And I, I wonder both, obviously, like how you woke up and then, but also at, along as you think back over those years of um, abuse, were there people looking back that you now realize they knew that this was all crazy and they just perpetuated it anyway because it was in their interest. I, yeah, the, I call it the years the locust has taken kind mm. of to reverse, mm. <laughs> a reverse a Christian saint. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if my pastor, uh, who just sent me a Facebook message. Well, oh, he's waving at me. That's, that's innocuous. Just Usually now. I'll get like, Usually I'll get an accidental video of like Fox News or something there. <laughs> you know, he's just sitting there. He oh, pushed so a button. So he's still he's... feeding the narrative for himself, even though he's very uh, yeah. old. Well, yeah, it's, yes. And he has so many Facebook accounts because sometimes he doesn't remember how to sign back in. So he just creates a new one and it's always misspelled. It's, oh, uh, yeah. So like I can't hold his feet to the fire, but. He had like, I became pretty close with him because I did a lot of free labor for the church starting when I was very young. Like I helped, you know, move into a new building. I helped paint walls. I was little when I was like scraping, scaffolding off flooring and, you know, mm. cleaning bathrooms, doing filing. More and he abuse. would always, he would reward me with like a trip to Long John Silver's when we were done, like hours of labor for like, you know, $5 meal. Ugh. And, and in those meals, he would just tell me, I think he opened up to me a little more than others. And he would tell me about how he would psychologically abuse kids, like how he, like everyone has a guilt conscience, especially believers and how he could manipulate it by he did something would happen. He wouldn't know who would do it. So we just take the kid he suspected or the kid who gets in trouble. Or we had one kid with obvious, obvious to me now disabilities, like mental disabilities, put him in an office and stare him down and use these, like, put him in a little chair and the pastor would be in a big chair and the pastor's a big guy. And he would like yell during sermons. So he was also a little scary and get red in the face. 
It's like CIA and interrogation techniques. He would stare at these kids and like until they would break and, and confess to anything. And wow. and we were in a school that beat children also. So I was beaten a lot. Um, but you don't until think I that he did, knew this well, was wrong? Like he was just doing what he thought was right. You don't think he knew? I think he fully believed that he had divine right, right. as a as an adult male over children and, and women. And that by even beating them, he was, it's like you spare the rod, you spoil the child. So you're, you're actually saving the child by beating it. Yes. And, and oh yeah, to train up a child. That was, yeah, that was one of our venerated texts. Um, we, yeah, cause it would be child abuse not to put welts on someone when they, okay. So accelerated Christian education is a beast. You get three demerits, you get a detention, and three detentions is a beating. But a demerit can be earned from not finishing your homework because you don't understand it, mm. which was my problem always. Um, so I would start out every day with one demerit. You get another one if your dad didn't sign your homework slip. My dad was kind of a non-parent for a lot of growing up. He also worked nights. So some days I would start out my school day with two demerits for innocuous things, things I had no real control over. Yeah. So I have one demerit left. If I dropped a book during like, so there'd be chunks of time where you're just staring at a wall. Each student is not allowed to talk to the other ones during the school day, unless you're at recess. And we're put in cubicles facing the wall, dividers between us. If we have a question about our work, we put up a Christian flag. If we need to self-score our work, because the teachers don't do anything, We'll put up an American flag. Um, if we have to go to the bathroom, we'll put up, I forget which flag. <laughs> and we're not allowed to speak. You're also not allowed to look around. So if you lean back in your chair too far, that can be a demerit if the teacher, if you're like labeled a bad kid and the teacher thinks that you're looking around. Wow. So I lived in a little prison, which was also abuse. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And it was worse when we had Mrs. Perez was our super head supervisor. And she did not like me. So if you're not liked as a child in this system, you get more demerits. So I got more beatings under Mrs. Press. Then she was kind of forced out because she wanted a higher position. And that was a no-no for women. And my mom took her place. And my life got so much easier because <laughs> right. my mom actually loved the students. Like when she died, students, her memorial service was overflowing out the church doors. Like yeah. oh my. hundreds and hundreds of people came. Because she loved the students. She protected us. Like the principal was a real, real hard ass. He would go through. We all had to line up perfectly straight in a big line before entering the school building after breaks. And he could walk the line and like give demerits just if you looked disrespectful. Or he would, he said, other principals walk the line with scissors if your hair gets too long. So like two boys, he didn't ever cut anyone's hair, but he did send two boys he didn't let them graduate that year because their hair would touch their ears. Like, um, so it was just very repressive and strict. And then like, so I'd start the day with two demerits. I once got a demerit. I once got three demerits. Cause you can also get like, they can just throw three at you, um, for touching pink insulation that had fallen out of the building. I thought it was cotton candy that had fallen on the floor. Ugh. And I, and I was like, ooh, cotton candy, and just went to pick it up. And I was like, that's not cotton candy. It's like, it has glass in it, you yeah, know, it's pokey. <laughs> old building. 
And I didn't, you know, it wasn't ever like the adults are responsible for making your environment safe, for keeping things like pink insulation out of reach of small children. No, it was, you should have known. That was clearly your fault. That that was dangerous. Yeah. Here's your detention. And um, I got in trouble once for, you know, beating someone at tetherball and not being humble enough. Um, Oh, I got in trouble once for, well, I don't know if we want to get into this, but um, I was sexually assaulted by another student and I was too angry about it afterwards. Oh, you weren't submissive Um, enough about it. Like I didn't forgive them correctly because if I'd forgiven them completely, I would not be so angry and like, like I couldn't sit in my chair properly after that. And it's really important that students sit perfectly still and stare at their work and are working. Um, and if you run out of work to do, you're supposed to do extra work or memorize chunks of the Bible. But I couldn't sit in my chair cause it felt wrong cause mm. the chair was touching me there. Yeah. It was, so I would be like wiggling and it got more demerits, which uh. got me beatings. And where were the beatings? On yep. my backside, right? You know where I had been abused, right? And at one point, this pastor, like I was alone with him in his office, and he bent me over and paddled me for a paddling I had earned, quote unquote. And when I bent over, my mandatory school uniform was this skirt, and my skirt kind of comes up, and it was very like sexually abusive the way it was handled, right? So oh, yeah, my. so just. All of this was excused as it's just power, powerful men over others. And that is a completely biblical idea. I am not saying that they subverted the Bible. I, it is in the Bible. Right. And they it were is doing what they the believed out of the Bible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They did not. Ab- like, I don't even think the pastor wanted to. Be, like, nobody really wanted to beat kids. They just wanted the kids to behave and they thought they had to. Right. Like, and that's me at my most gracious, but like... Yeah, that's being pretty gracious, yeah. I don't... Yeah, no one wants to, like, ruin your life. They just... But they... They want you to be perfect. They wanted you to go to heaven. They wanted you to please God. That was the end goal. Even, like, the founder of ACE has said, it is not our goal to educate a child. It is our... You know, we are not about educating children. We are about making, you know not making disciples. I forget the exact wording. It's about saving kids from hell. children to love the Lord or to serve the Lord. At least he gets it. So yeah, like it's, he says, quote unquote, not about education. And I'm like, then don't call yourself Christian education. Right. Uh, At least we agree on that. Jeez. Oh gosh. Yeah. So I have to ask you, and I know we're kind of getting short on time, but I didn't want to stop, stop you because this is just so, I mean, it's it's horrific, but it's compelling, and I think it's so important for it to be told. And I, I'm so grateful for your courage to to finally talk about this publicly, um, because I do think, it, you know, it it comes at a cost to you, I'm sure, and, and it also can be so beneficial to others, um, you know. But and I know you've talked about this other part on other shows, but I have to ask you here: like, eventually, something clicked with you, and you were like enough is enough. Uh, How did you finally get away from this abusive um, mainstream Christianity? (laughs) Right. And I, I I prayed my way out of Christianity, Mm. um, which is the broad answer, but I want to 
preface that with the abuse didn't get me out. It made me dive deeper into my faith. Wow. The, it wasn't the adverse. Like I had a crap, that was crappy. There's a lot of bright spots in my childhood. There's playing softball. There's playing with my cousins. There's wandering the hills. Like, sure. I, there's so much good about it. The, the fundamentalism was all bad. And even then, there's some fundamentalists that loved me and cared. And, but I want to say my deconversion had nothing to do with what people did wrong or right. It had to do with a pursuit of truth. And it started with prayer failing me. Um, and I decided to um, test prayer for the first time. But I had every belief and every faith that prayer would succeed. Right. Because I still believed very strongly that God was real. I just was wondering how prayer worked because maybe I had it wrong and I dove into the Bible and no, I had it right. There's contradictory stuff about prayer, but, but even taking them and comparing scripture with scripture, it is pretty clear. You can like pray for healing. You can pray, you can bother the judge like the widow does. It's supposed to do stuff. Yeah. It, prayer changes things. Right. I was told all the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so it kind of starts, the big one starts with my daughter when she was born with a severe disability that required multiple major surgeries. And, and she was the reason I could not stay in the mission field. We were, uh, we had put in an application to be permanent overseas missionaries, my husband and I, Hmm. um, in Papua New Guinea and in their Lapalo, um, support place. And, uh, and then this baby came along and arthrogoposis looks the worst at birth. It is just, you're pretzeled in on yourself. She was born without calves and shoulder muscles and biceps and, uh, her fingers were bent and stuck thumb and palm Hmm. fingers, touching forearms, complete wrist curve. She couldn't lift her arm. She couldn't move. She couldn't kick. All the kick counts I'd been counting had been hiccups. Um, I'd never, I've never felt my baby kick inside me. Wow. Um, and we did seven ultrasounds. We knew something was up. And it, we couldn't go overseas at that point. There was, her disability was so severe. And, um, and that's the first time, like, Ron Barnes was my professor. They'd encouraged me to pray 30 to 45 minutes every day in college. Um, and he recently passed away like a couple of weeks ago. He got lost on a hike um, oh, wow. and died. Oh. I'm sure he died praying. Um, Probably. And, and with no one there. Um, but so I tested prayer with my daughter because she had a severe disability. And I prayed that she would walk. I prayed that she would wiggle her finger. I prayed that... Um, she had half her face was paralyzed, but only for like a few days. So I prayed that she would smile. I prayed that she would, um, be able to turn her head. Her torticollis was so bad. I prayed that someday she'd be able to like hold my finger. And, um, and I guess the, my, the first time prayer failed me, the true first time was when my mom was killed. And I genuinely, 100% in pure faith, James would be proud of me, the biblical James, yeah. prayed with 100% believing it would happen, pure, unadulterated faith. I can't describe this, how pure this was, that God would raise my mom from the dead. 
that didn't happen. <laughs> so <laughs> you don't it, say. He, like Tabitha was raised from the dead. Lazarus was raised from the dead. That boy that the prophet laid on top of him, which was kind of sexual, raised from the dead. But like, and my mom was like amazing and the best Christian ever. And and then when I like meekly like kind of told a couple people who were this is the point where we're all in my living room grieving and there's people coming over like pastors and stuff and I kind of mentioned let's make sure I want to see her body I kept saying and no one would let me because she was crumpled like a piece of paper it would have been traumatic I still think I should have been able to see it it would have given me a lot of closure but at this point I'm asking because I think there's a chance I don't know if it's good or not I think there's a chance God raised her from the dead because everything I've been taught is that God can do that. And I've prayed in a hundred percent faith and I can move mountains. And why would I be taught all of this up until this point? If it were not true, why would I, what has, everything's been preparing me for this moment. My entire faith, every, all my doctrines, all the theology, all the memorized Bible verses has been preparing me for this prayer. And I did it perfectly. And when I mentioned it and people kind of chuckled or went, Oh honey, like, it destroyed me. Hmm. Oh gosh, I'm going to cry. It destroyed me. It Goodness, sorry. Didn't cry in the other podcast. You're you're doubly special. <laughs> <laughs> it, it 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 was like that's not how prayer works. So that's not how God works. That's never happened was the message I got. But no, it happened in the Bible. Yeah, but that's the Bible. So that, so I guess that was the first, the very, very first time where the Bible had to be separate from reality and prayer didn't work the way it did in the Bible. So maybe that was, maybe that was the little speck, but when my daughter was born and the next day the doctor said, it's the myoplasia type of arthrogryposis multiplex congenita, which I couldn't pronounce for like the first week. And I kept having him write down and he was very patient. And I said, will she ever walk? Will she ever stand? And he said, she's very severe. There's, but I can't tell you for sure. Um, but I don't, you know, he, he didn't think so, but he didn't like dash all my hopes either. Mm. Um, because I just had a C-section and I, and sobbing hurt like the Dickens. Right. Um, and, and I just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And, um, and yeah. And then everyone was praying for her and I was praying so hard. And that's when I learned my all powerful God who uses prayer to change things had never, ever regrown a limb, never rebuilt a muscular system, never like she was missing muscle in the interior horn cells that develop into muscle had not and the tissue had calcified. So, like, you can't even do a muscle transfer in parts of her body. It wouldn't work. There's nothing to connect to. Huh. And so, and then I watched everyone around me do the dance they did at the day after my mom was killed. Then, all of a sudden, prayer that they had preached could change anything. Every time the doctors would show us, like, we did a muscle biopsy. Oh, there's no muscle there. Nothing grew there. Prayers became not... Pray that the muscle's strong. Pray that she'll move her arm. It just became, pray that she'll accept her disability, that God will use her. Like, watching us adjust to reality 
was the first domino that, and then every time I had to adjust to reality until I was praying things that would work out naturally every time. And I had a red prayer journal and I went back to it and I noticed all my answered prayers, all my praises um, were all things that would work out 100% naturally. And so I tried to, so I was going to test prayer with full faith again that God would reveal his power, that God would be real. I believed he was real still. And I just tried praying different ways because I thought I was doing it wrong because it's always human error because God's perfect. And, uh, and I tried, I was going to pray to a plastic fork, but it was so blasphemous. I couldn't do it. Um, at this point I'm online and like, I, you know, and getting, I like, if you pray to a candlestick, it will have the same results. And I'm like, no, it can't have the same results. It's because prayer's real and God's real and the God behind it is real. So it must just be how we're doing it wrong or God saying no or something. And so I'm going to have the same experience I did with all my praises and prayer requests in my journals and all my life. And I'm going to, so I I decided to stop praying entirely because I couldn't pray to something else. It was, it wasn't real, you know, I only prayed to God because he was real. Um, So I stopped praying and I even told God, I'm going to stop praying and you are allowed to make my life worse. I know this will make my life worse. And my life got better and better and better um, because the pressure was off of brain. Uh, we went through another surgery of a bunch. Um, and, and my daughters had all four limbs cut and rotated. <laughs> so like mm. they, major surgeries. Her knees have had metal plates drilled into them, taken out, drilled back into them. Um, she's, she has permanent like pins in her arms. Like she's... You know, she's had a lot of major surgeries and the best surgery experience. And we have to fly across the country with this surgery. So they're extra stressful. You're flying with a post-op kid and across three airplanes later, you get to the other side of the country to get the specialist. And, and so we're just, the one surgery we didn't pray, I slept. I was more attentive to my daughter. Mm. I was, you know, a better parent. Um, and not praying worked so well. I was going to not pray for a year. <laughs> not was, praying works. That's the quote of the episode. Not praying worked so well. So well. Uh, at three months in, I was an atheist. Wow. You just were like, yep, there's nothing there. Which I love that as a person who's never taken a science class, not a real one, not really a real one. <laughs> right. You were applying um, the scientific method. Yeah, I was. I got to be the little scientist that like, (laughs) like even when in community college, I did take like a physical anthropology class, but I did my final paper on creationism and he gave me an A. So like he did not give a crap. Like (laughs) I was not learning evolution. So like I'm going to take my very, very first real science class tomorrow, but maybe like there's a little hope for the little scientist inside me that mm. that did a data that studied the data and wrote down observations and had a hypothesis that turned out to be wrong and changed my mind with the evidence wow hallelujah <laughs> <laughs> and how old is your daughter now she is 10 now and she is also an atheist wow have because i met was, have i met her was she, did she come you with have. you yeah, that's what I thought. You would the girl in the big leg braces. Yeah, the, uh. the one that would never walk five 
pediatric orthopedic surgeons told us she'd never walk, and now we fly across the country, and he got her walking. So she's walking in full leg braces. Uh, she doesn't. She's missing the muscle, but she has like she can swing her hips and. So much power to her. This is and you for, and your husband for going through all of that and just getting your priorities right. You know, I mean, I feel like to me as I hear you tell that story, it's you know God first you know, family and whatever and children second. And you looked at the situation and said, no, my daughter's first. I got yeah. to I gotta figure this out for her. And if prayer's not getting it done, then I'm going to have to take responsibility for this myself, which you were doing already anyway. And you just said, no, this is what's real. You know, somehow you were able to break the spell and and make the observation that not only is prayer not working, it's holding me back. It's making me less attentive to my child. It's making me stressed out in ways I, I it's already stressful enough to have to, to have a, a child that's so sick and needs so much attention and flying across the country, as you said, and and yeah. to, and to find to me the I've never heard anybody say that before that when they stopped praying things got better. I, I just I guess I'm sure other people have experienced that. I've just never heard anybody say that before, and so profound. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I miss the high. Prayer is a high. And I do remember times where it would calm me down. It was all those times where I hadn't done it yet or I felt the pressure to do it so I could calm down first. And life's so busy. And yeah, and it's completely unnecessary. Like if you're at a baseline, you're at a good level. You don't need like calm music or dark lights or something. You don't need to calm down. Hmm. You're doing fine. You're at bed at the end of the night and you're like, oh, I've got to pray, you know, <laughs> I don't so know. So you're like, at like eight or nine, 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 eight or nine years then since you decided it was all a sham. Yeah, yeah I was, it's been six Six, years. okay. Yeah, six, she, yeah, yeah, because yeah, it was, she was three or four by the time that those surgeries were, finally you were like, wait, this isn't helping, this is hurting. Yeah, she had a one of her surgeries, the one to cut her legs, not cut her legs off and turn around, but cut the bone and twist it, but like turn her legs around. Um, her epidural had failed and she was in so much pain. She was delusional. Oh wow! And we were on like seven church prayer chains. Like all my missionary contacts were praying all like the world was praying for her. And that happened. And it was, and then it was like, Oh, well, God's testing your faith by torturing a three-year-old. Like, um, wow, yeah. it was, it was so horrible. And then like other kids who had my same, my daughter's same disability were flying to the same hospital from all over the world. One from Singapore, who's Hindu. One was atheist. Um, one was Catholic and one was pagan. Right. And so, and they all have the same disability. And those other kids were at one point all doing better like in my estimation they were all doing better than my daughter um like their epidurals didn't fail their surgery they were doing therapies and they were standing before she was and i'm like and they're praying to the wrong gods or to no gods or to the goddesses and i'm praying to the correct all-powerful god like Mm. something's not adding up And I know this is. I, I didn't. I didn't know it was bullshit at the time. I didn't. I didn't know a scientific study had already been done for millions of dollars that had debunked prayer, intercessory prayer, the mm. year before my daughter was born. Or this would have made more sense to me. I was very flabbergasted why why prayer was. It let me down. 
It was well, devastating. You came to your, yeah, I'm sure it was. And you came to your own conclusions and then found out about the research later. That's yeah, much later. <laughs> and, you know, it's, I don't want to extend this too much longer. And I know this is probably opening up in a whole other can of worms. But just briefly, um, it sounds like your husband was able to make this kind of transition sort of seamlessly with you. Is that, is that true? So my husband is an evangelical Christian who goes to church. Oh, I'm completely <laughs> wrong. Um, and he's amazing. He made this transition with me in the ways that you lose. He lost his friend, his close friends or his friends are less close. Uh, he lost the support of, you know, some family member, my side of the family. Um, he went through the losses and he did nothing wrong. He, you know, according to Christianity, he did nothing wrong. Right. Um, he, you know, he was like, no, in Corinthians, it says I'm not divorcing her. And I can be our children can still be holy because I'm the believing parent and all the all the stuff that the Bible teaches. Like he's doing it right. He like still gives his testimony at secular events. He's still like he's a Christian and he just happens to be one that is amazing and wonderful and always learning and tolerant, goes to Sunday assembly with us. We don't go to church with him because of the indoctrination. Like in Sunday assembly doesn't indoctrinate. They teach kids how to like the other week they took the DNA out of strawberries where they created flying rockets. Like it's all sciencey, right? Right. Um so like so that's safe for Christians to get actual to. education, in other words. Right. Whereas like we've taken our kids to church and it made me really uncomfortable. One service at his former church, they they were doing all about how Jesus heals people. And it, it was a really horrible message. If you have a disability uh, and both my kids have major disabilities, my son entered our family through adoption. He just happened to have the same major disability as my daughter, which is how we found him. Uh -huh. um, and then at one point we were fostering a daughter, our foster daughter for a year who had the same severe physical disabilities. They all three had it. And I was took them all to church and the church told them that Jesus could heal them with enough prayer. And that's the last time we went to that church. <laughs> Jesus just doesn't give a shit about you. Sorry. Right. Your, your whole life is like a consequence of sin and it's just manifesting differently. We're all sinners. You're just somehow got the manifestation really bad. And, but Jesus could heal you if you pray hard enough, like, or if you pray hard enough, he'll use you better because prayer is totally a real thing that works and is not, you know, divorced from reality. <laughs> oh, my. Well, Alexis, you have been through it. And I know that, you know, where you stand today is the result of a lot of, you know, your own hard work and the support of a lot of really loving people. But you just, I mean, you just exude this strength and confidence. And um, I'm just so impressed and so grateful for you to just share your story so openly. And um, yeah, I'm really kind of speechless. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to thank you for your, your year without God was, was it on top of my year without prayer? It was, it was just so similar or I discovered it when I was going through, you know, or right before, mm. I don't know. It meant so much to me at the time that that it was like okay i'm not the only one doing this i'm not the only one on this journey and then of course now we have a big life after god community and you know yeah. facebook's wonderful 
Well, it's, you know, we need each other because it is even as secular as our society is becoming, it's still um, such a minefield out there. And, you know, as you know, I work with students now at the Secular Student Alliance and in, you know, not in every, every part of the country is not the same, but in so many parts of our country, just showing up and saying you don't believe in God, you believe, you know, in the what science reveals or what research reveals and you know, it just is, is a, a super controversial thing to say even now in right. co- colleges around the country. Um, so it's, it's, we need each other and we need to support each other and try to, um, spread the good news. <laughs> yeah, right. You don't have to be religious. You're heaven, you know, there's heaven freedom. and hell have no evidence. There's no evidence. It's all in your head, you know? <laughs> like, well, and the funny thing is, you know, when I was sort of in your, and of course I didn't experience Christianity as severely as you did, but you know, part of my upbringing was also like gospel, telling the gospel, converting people, um, winning their them to Jesus and all of that. And, and the message was freedom, you know, that Jesus would bring true freedom. And, yes. and the irony is when I did my year without God, um, there was obviously losses associated with that, but overwhelmingly I felt this sense of freedom and I suddenly was like, oh man, I, I feel like I want to bring freedom to others. It's kind of like what I was doing in my ministry all along, but sort of now in the reverse. And I, and I truly don't feel a, a major compulsion to deconvert people, um, you know, unless they are experiencing the severity of the abuse that comes along with faith and religion. And in those cases, I might say, you know, you don't have to put up with that. Like you don't have to submit yourself to that. Um, and it's, it's interesting. It's just interesting that my career was focused on helping people find freedom. And now on the other side, I feel like that's the same. I'm still (laughs) trying to help people find freedom. Well, that Bible, the truth did set you free. It set me free. There are a couple Bible (laughs) verses that are true. Yeah, except for the truth there was Jesus, and that wasn't true. But it was inadvertently true that text. Yeah, yeah, in, in its own uh, in its own way. Yeah, I know. When I first deconverted, I I have this journal entry that's hilarious, where I'm just like, I'm I'm so I'm so naive, and I feel like you start out and you're like, I want other people to experience this. I want other people to same thing when you convert, right? Like, I, I, you're like this little evangel, you know, evangelistic tendencies for a minute. Um, and yeah. I just wrote this entry, like, I can't wait to like, tell my, I was so convinced, like ev- all my friends and my husband and my dad and everyone would like, if I explained it and they found it for themselves, it would like sting a little and, you know, but then they'd be free and they'd be like, oh man. I Thank you so to- much, Alexis, for telling yeah. us the truth. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Huh. Uh, funny, my how husband, funny about that. If, if he were the interviewee right now, he would. I'm sure he has some stories about <laughs> when I first he converted. Like he couldn't even talk to me. Like he'd have to leave the room if it would come up because I was so excited and passionate and like, you know, like honey, honey. <laughs> you wouldn't believe <laughs> what I just learned. Study. There's no evidence of this. Um, that's not how humans work, little Alexis. That's not how reality works. This right. is. The, the, cog- the, the like motivated reasoning is a thing and, you know, cognitive bias is a strong thing. And, yeah. um, yeah. Like if you ask my husband today why he's still a Christian, he will be like, cause the message works that works for the world, like the worldview he has 
like makes sense to him. And, and if I put holes in it, sometimes we have to stop talking because it's uncomfortable and we're not going to agree and that's okay. Mm. But definitely I'm no longer, I don't care. <laughs> like I, I am not, I, I think at Logical this last in LA, this last time someone stood up and said, we're um, atheist evangelists. And I groan. I'm like, no, yeah. I'm not. Yeah. Don't want anyone to have to lose their faith. I don't want my husband. Like, it would be nice if we believed the same things. But we have a pretty incredible marriage, you know, believing different things. And, and it works because we both value the truth. And if the Bible's true. If God's true, then it will be real. Then you don't have to indoctrinate your kids. So when, so our kids know about Jesus. They know about the gospel. They know about other faiths. Well, that's, I mean, that's big of you. And I think it's, it's tough because when it comes down to our own kids, we want them to be well and we want them to be healthy, both physically, but also mentally. And we think we're right. And so it's just so easy to push what you believe on your kids, um, whether it's Christianity or the opposite. So um, right. I really, I really applaud you. I mean, and I feel like I, my guess is too, that the strength of your relationship with your husband, even though you, you have things that hold you and bind you together that are more than just your beliefs about metaphysics or, you know, you know, supernatural right. things. I mean, you have children, you've fought for your children together. You've, built a family together. I mean, these are all things that are transcend, you know, luckily for him, he's the kind of Christian that those, those things that hold you together are stronger than the things that you have that are different. So that's a really a, a credit to him and to you. But I mean, I think especially to him, cause I think Christians have an especially hard time with that. Um, yes. I think doubly credit goes to him. I think it's easier for me in every way. Right, because, I mean, you're open-minded progressive. Like, you are you think, well, okay, he has a different view than me. I can live with that. But a lot of Christians are like, no, I can't live with that. Like, you have to be going in the same direction as me on this, or, or a Muslim. I mean, any of the monotheistic faith. Although Judaism has really evolved nicely that it, it has room for even straight-up disbelief. You can be... a a reformed Jew and go to synagogue and do all the stuff that they do and not believe in God. But Islam and Christianity right. have a really hard time with this sort of allowing other people to believe what they want. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's... I reviewed the atheist Muslim and, mm. and I was like, Oh man, I wish we could get to that place. But yeah, all the, all the Jewish people I'm super close friends with are all atheists. Yeah. They don't and not, care. not cause I sought out only atheist ones. It's just, like, I wish, I, I see, like, many moons from now, all religion kind of, it's going to have to, or in the information age, and, I, yeah. like, maybe this is my idealistic, maybe we'll be on the podcast again in six years, and I'll be like, remember when I said that silly thing? Um, <laughs> well, it seems but, like it's going to polarize. Like, I think human, like humanists will find humanism, and I think there are Christians that are humanistic, and there are... Muslims totally. that are humanistic, and I think there's going to be that polarize that polarizing where the good folks, according to my worldview, uh, will gravitate to a humanistic version of whatever it is that they were raised with culturally, and then the fundamentalists are going to polarize the other way, as we see happening. And there, so yeah, I, but I, I agree with you. I think that religion um, isn't going to go away, and it will either adapt to the truth that it is revealed as time goes by, or it won't, and there'll be these two sort of factions and who knows where that leads us but 
Well, Alexis, thank you so much for being so open and and sharing so personally uh, from your life. And the journey that you've been on is truly remarkable. And um, I'm just really grateful for you uh, coming on and sharing it with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of The X-Files. And thank you to Alexis Record for spending her Sunday morning recording this conversation with me. To learn more about Life After God and The X-Files, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. If you appreciate this show and it adds value to your life, I hope you'll consider supporting the work I'm doing by visiting my Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod and making a monthly recurring donation of any size to support the production of this show. Please tune in in two weeks for the next episode, my conversation with author Jessica Wilbanks. Until then, I'm your host, Ryan Bell, and this has been The X-Files, Stories of Life After God.